in the 35 years that, that I've been the custodian, many, many overseas visitors uh, have been here. Many people have been to the Lord. If you're a visitor to Australia, whether you're a tourist or a businessman, I don't know what it is, but people have either heard of it or been to the Lord Nelson. And they say uh, to me as well that they, they appreciate that it looks just the same. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Beer is strongly associated with Australian social occasions, but craft beer in many instances has only really experienced the limelight in the last few years. Of course, there are some that came along before the swathe of boutique brewers, some that set a benchmark, carved a new path for both craft beer and pub dining and culture down under. Blair Hayden is the co-owner of the Lord Nelson Brewery Hotel, Sydney's oldest continually licensed hotel and now oldest craft brewery. Blair, how are you going? I'm very well, thank you, considering we're in a lockdown situation yet again. Well, we can talk about that shortly. You've been in the business of craft beer since the 80s. What do you think of the rise of craft beer down under? Um, I think it's spectacular. We were well ahead of our time um, when in 1986 we decided to open uh, a craft brewery uh, all on the back of what was going on with real ale in the United Kingdom at the time. Um, So uh, what's happening now is a dream that should have been happening probably almost 30 years ago. What's been the hurdles and and why do you think it's come to fruition in in the last sort of five to ten years? I think that uh, like the evolution of the wine industry in Australia, which was uh, obviously uh, a much later development than what was going on in Europe, uh, France in particular, um, that the big breweries in Australia tended to um, dominate what was going on in the brewing world here. And um, they were the ones that dictated what beers we were drinking and um, it wasn't a choice by patron uh, or customer. It was a, a choice by the brewer themselves. And um, it wasn't really till more recognition of those natural hours or a bit more resurgence in natural hours took place that craft brewing started to get some momentum. And that's the same as what happened really in the wine industry as the wine industry improved their techniques and uh, and the results in winemaking uh, excellence, uh, so grew the following. Take us back to the early years with the Lord Nelson. You, It was triggered because of the real ale sort of thing that was going on in the UK. But what were the challenges in Australia with opening that, that sort of craft brewery at the time? Uh, we were sort of laughed at a bit, to be quite honest. People didn't really take us seriously. I and mean, they walked into the hotel and said, I'll have a VB, please. And I said, well, we don't have any. And they'd, they'd turn around and walk out the door, perplexed, uh, amazed and whatever. Um, so it took time for people to understand that there were more beers available than perhaps a VB or a, or, or a, um, a Tui's or any other like lager. Um, we used to point to the back of the bar and show them where the brewery tanks were and that was even more perplexing for them because it's a bit like milk beer. They sort of didn't understand that it came from a cow or it came out of a tank. I mean, I don't know where they thought beer came from, but it uh, didn't come just on a truck that delivered to a pub. Well, what sort of beers were you making in those days and, and what makes a great beer? 
Uh, well, that's that's a multifaceted question, but uh, the one that it uh, isn't is that we make ales, uh, and ales are top fermented uh, beers, in difference to lagers, which are a bottom fermenting uh, beer, and also lagers are fermented at a lower temperature and under a, in a sealed tank, and a lager yeast is a different yeast to an ale yeast, so they ferment at a different temperature, and therefore act differently. In the in, in the brewing process or manufacturing process, so ales are a bit like wines in a way. Um, and whilst we pitch yeast uh, to to produce ales, and uh, in the wine industry, the way I operate anyway is we use the natural yeast in the winery. Um, it's the yeast fermenting on top of the brew, uh, which creates. Um, some nuances and some uh, difficulties in terms of uh, control in, in making uh, a beer. So every time we put a brew down, it's like doing another vintage in the wine industry. So we do that four times a week here at the Lord, and, and uh, every uh, brew is another exciting experiment in what we're doing. And therefore, we have slight differences in each brew, even though we might be making supposedly the same recipe. Uh, the beers vary because of fermentation going off more quickly or more slowly and uh, indeed what's happening in the atmosphere and what other wild yeast are around in the air at the time. The Lord Nelson's not only known for beer but for great pub food as well. How have you seen the evolution of gastro pubs in Australia and what's been your focus? Um, well, that's always been my focus, uh, and I'm, I'm proud to see that there is some movement in gastro pubs, some very good movement now. Um, we have to remember that uh, the pub scene in, in Australia 35 years ago was focused around uh, gaming machines, um, and that's exactly uh, what I am again. I mean, I'm not against gambling uh, at all, but I don't like gaming machines because to me, um, they take away the whole reason why pubs exist, and that is a meeting place for where people can be convivial, um, catch up with friends, uh, sure, have a punt on a racehorse or a dog or whatever a great tradition, a rain drop down a window in the Australian tradition, but not, but not, but not in, in, in gaming machines, which I think destroy the soul of what hotels or pubs are really about. And I guess having lived in the UK, I, I really cherish the, uh, the hospitality that's, that, that pubs in the UK create uh, by not only their history, but by, by the people that sit on the left-hand corner of the bar and those that sit on the right-hand corner of the bar. Never that the twain shall meet in many cases, but, you know, that's, that's the, the character of, of pubs in the UK. And um, I, I just like the atmosphere that that creates. Well, the atmosphere and conviviality of, of pubs is so important to so many, particularly in the last year and a half. But what sort of impact has sort of these sort of multiple lockdowns, and you're in one at the moment, had on, on what you do? Oh, well, it's devastating and um, it's uh, unsettling, uh, not just for me as an owner and, and an operator. Um, however, it's very unsettling for the staff. There's very uncertain terms, uh, sorry, times. And um, a lot of the staff that we have relied on in the hospitality industry have been travellers. Um, COVID has put uh, an end to a lot of that, uh, the majority in fact. 
And as Australians by nature don't really wish to work in the hospitality industry, we are extremely reliant on backpackers such as Europeans uh, and the current uh, or, or the last current batch of of hospitality workers have been predominantly Europeans, Brazilians, um, and of those, and of those, as those tourists have returned back to their homes, uh, we found it extremely difficult to restaff during this time, and that comes from uh, experts in the kitchen uh, because we just do not have enough trained and qualified chefs in Australia uh, to wait. Uh, experienced and um, professional wait staff to those that are willing to help and, and become trained on premise in terms of bar staff and other duties around the hotel. So it's been very difficult and for those that are still working on a casual basis in this industry, I my heart goes out to them. Their loyalty to the industry as is mine and theirs um, has been destroyed and um, because there is sort of no end to what is going on at the present time. And so we value very much their support and the ongoing uh, difficulties that they're having to go through until we can get back to some sort of uh, normality. Let me say that the last uh, gap, the last opening was showing real signs of promise and some, some days of brilliant trading and excitement in terms of off sales with our keg business, which meant that the rest of the um, industry was showing signs signs of a comeback as well. The Lord Nelson is the oldest continuously licensed hotel in Australia. T tell me a bit about its history. Um, it was built in the uh, initial days as a residence for a merchant uh, whom in those days, the ships used to moor in Walsh Bay, just the bottom of the hill from uh, where Kent Street is. And therefore, it was frequented regularly by, um, uh, well, sorry, it was built as a residence and then converted to a hotel in 1841, whereby it was frequented by sailors who, who visited uh, the shores, delivering goods from uh, Europe, UK and Europe. And... Um, since 1841, it has traded continuously as a hotel. It never, it's never moved premises or ever closed its license or had the license shut down. So that's why we have claimed to being the oldest continually licensed hotel. Yes, there are other hotels that were licensed earlier and uh, we applaud them and their operation, those that are still operating. However, they can't claim that they were never closed or their license was moved there. And that's something that we at the Lord are very proud of. Since you've owned and operated the Lord Nelson, has the building revealed any of its secrets to you? Uh, well, in the, in the beginning, there certainly was a ghost here. And uh, I'm not one that believes in ghosts, so to speak. I'm a fairly <laughs> straightforward kind of a character for those who know me. But I can assure you that after being here, there is definitely something in ghosts. Um, we would, uh, in those early days, uh, I was working seven days a week from opening to close, uh, plus doing all the cellar work. And um, one assistant that was with me at the time was help helping and operate the tourists in the hotel. We would put the beer on in the cellar and come upstairs and there was no beer coming out of the tap. We knew that we'd turned the lines, the lines were on. We knew the gas was on. There was no reason why the beer shouldn't be coming out. We go downstairs and the beer wasn't on. Now, there were only the two of us here. There was no one playing games, but somehow along that light road, 
there was uh, something going on. So we nicknamed this fellow Hamish because as you would go through the cellar, you would get a glimpse there was someone else there or get the feeling that someone was there or feel there was movement. So we called him Hamish and Hamish, uh, we uh, believe, was a friendly ghost and was there to protect us more than be a Guinness. And uh, he was often on our journey from uh, many parts of the hotel, not just the cellar, but when we went upstairs to the to the accommodation, you could also get glimpses of people moving in the passageway. So Hamish was definitely about, and other people felt him and came to us and discussed this, just the same subject. Food uh, was always your focus with the Lord Nelson when you first opened up. What, what was food like for you growing up? Uh, I came from a, a strong food background. I was born in New Zealand uh, in a country town. Uh, we, uh, my father worked for a company called Borthwicks, which is a meat company, a privately owned meat company, one of the second largest meat, uh, privately owned meat companies in the world behind the Vesti Group at the time. And uh, he was production manager, uh, of which there were three freezing works in New Zealand, which he uh, oversaw. Um, and was in charge of production when he was running uh, one particular uh, freezing works and fielding. Uh, he was headlined in the newspaper as Big Kill Bill, who uh, managed to break the record in New Zealand for uh, processing 23,000 smalls in one day, which was a New Zealand record at the time, smalls being sheep, goats, pigs, uh, not cattle. Um, there's also there's another claim to fame was the first ever in that boning room to cryovac meat. In other words, put meat in a vacuum packaged bag. WR Grace was a company that owned cryovac, uh, and they used to put meat into. They designed a system where you could suck the air out of a bag and put a metal clip on the end of the bag, and it was vacuumed, and therefore uh, meat could be transported in a chilled but fresh state rather than frozen state. So they experimented and sent those pioneering shipments into Japan. And uh, it was obviously extremely well received. Although there were some fall down, sometimes air did get into the bag. That system wasn't quite as good as the heat sealed bags of today. But really interesting and exciting days to be able to uh, manufacture a product and send it as, it as if it was fresh to the table. And um, I was always associated with that, always around that. My father was a very strong vegetable gardener. My mother was a wonderful cook, uh, country style. So we ate uh, very well from ingredients from the garden. Of course, meat was in plentiful supply for us. Luckily, we had lots of lamb, being kiwis, uh, indeed lots of beef. But, you know, we ate offal, we ate pig's tails. So it was all brought home. And uh, my mother cooked uh, with glee those things. Uh, and my grandmother obviously was a country uh, farmer's wife and that, that farming background of being able to turn nothing into something existed in our life. So we were always cooking, there was baking, there was always fresh scones. Uh, so we were, I was surrounded by that kind of thing with my grandmother's house or indeed at home. So my love for cooking and food started at a very young age. You ended up moving to the UK. How different was that to growing up in New Zealand and, and what were you there for? Uh, very, very different. Moving from a town of uh, 12,000 people, though I did live in Wellington as well uh, for some time, um, was, a, was a unique experience. Uh, my first time overseas, 
um, uh, Melbourne, Hawaii, uh, San Francisco, London. Uh, yes, very exciting, very wide eye sort of behaviour when you're in such a very huge place uh, whilst they spoke the same language, very different culture and exciting times. Uh, young, 18 years of age, to me it was a great way to experiment with many things in the world, which I did. And I was lucky enough to uh, get a job working for a German meat company in London. So I traveled between Germany and uh, Hamburg and London on many occasions, uh, but also throughout the United Kingdom. Initially, we were importing uh, and distributing meat from South America. Uh, again, chilled meat. Uh, so it was vacuum packed meat plus frozen meats for manufacturing, further manufacturing, but supplying uh, uh, depots and wholesalers that supplied restaurant chains, etc., etc. So it was very ex exciting times. You also um, worked a lot with uh, Pakistan and the Middle East uh, in in the meat trade. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, just before that, I was uh, I was actually whilst in the UK, I was asked to visit New Zealand and Australia on a business trip uh, to try and secure lamb and meat product for uh, the German Freeport market. And um, that was a sort of slightly different in new new uh, angle on meat importation into Europe. Um, in West Germany, since from the war, they hadn't really eaten any lamb. They, uh, they thought that lamb was uh, very similar to the mutton they ate during the war, and, and that's what most people ate during World War II was mutton, and therefore much grainier in texture and uh, often tallowy in taste, and probably in the way it was prepared as well. Uh, but those memories weren't... Uh, joyously remembered by many people for obvious reasons. So for us to uh, export some lamb, and uh, we did that after taking some time and uh, a long, you know, many visits to uh, freezing works in New Zealand, we secured our first contract of 50,000 lambs uh, in, into Germany, and uh, they were sent frozen, and we cut them in our boning room in uh, the freeport of Hamburg, and uh, we cut them into loins, legs, etc., etc., and then some into chops. Where on my return, we hosted a a, uh, a cocktail party, so to speak, where we launched this new veal we'd found in New Zealand. Well, people were ecstatic; they loved it. It was the best new veal they'd ever tasted in their life, uh, and were of course extremely surprised when they learned that they were nice, lean, grass-fed lambs from New Zealand. It was the beginning of uh, a very huge business for us uh, and we bought a lot of lambs out of uh, New Zealand and exported into Germany. Uh, and on that, at that same time, we were securing beef out of Australia for further manufacturing in, in uh, Germany as well. And we were the first ever ship veal uh, size uh, in a quarter form, frozen quarters, from Casino Abattoir in northern New South Wales to Germany. Wow. So they were exciting days, and uh, it was the only reason we were able to do it uh, out of casino was they were the only abattoir at the time that was prepared to do a post and anti-mortem blood test for brucellosis on those uh, cattle that had been slaughtered the day before. So, you know, pioneering days, and uh, through that, um, much, much more ensued my movement to Australia. <laughs> well, it 
in the 80s, you started your own meat business, uh, importing New Zealand uh, chilled meat into chilled meats into Sydney. Um, do you have any memories and stories from from those days? Yes, they were uh, again were interesting days. The uh, uh, late 70s, um, things were very open, and I think in, in those days, Friday lunches were de rigueur. Uh, the industry did a lot of business. Uh, on Friday lunch, and therefore uh, Angus State Cave and other such establishments in Sydney were always fully booked on Fridays, and uh, things were, were were strong. So there was an opening for consistent quality uh, beef, and what uh, the New Zealand grass-fed beef could supply uh, almost all year round was consistent uh, quality. Australia has beautiful beef as well. Please don't misunderstand me, but the climatic change of this uh, very large country made for very different quality controls. And to be quite honest, the grading system up at that particular time wasn't as good as it could have been. So whilst you could get beautiful grass-fed beef from Victoria and, and southern New South Wales, when, when in fact, uh, and indeed northern New South Wales at times, when the rain patterns were correct, it wasn't always consistent. And uh, uh, there was a lot of um, grain-fed uh, beef uh, in the marketplace as well. But to me, uh, nature was always the best way. And um, I'm not against anything uh, in regards to uh, meat production or agriculture generally. But I do think that grass-fed is best-fed. And I think flavour uh, comes more from grass-fed animal than it does from uh, the addition of other adjuncts uh, and indeed uh, finishing off on grain, which certainly is a weight uh, gainer and certainly can create some more and uh, uh, consistent tenderness uh, at the last part of that animal's growth. But quite honestly, if you've been walking uh, 20 kilometres a day to try and fill your stomach in the beginning, well, standing still for the last part of your life isn't going to solve that issue. Well, Transferring your career from the meat industry to running a pub was was there anything that any uh, anything that you found similar or or challenging with that switch? Um, yes, it was, it was always a challenge. But to me, running a business is running a business, and I think that were, you know my philosophy was uh, always just to run run a business to the best of my ability. Uh, obviously, that involves making sure that we're in control of costs, and uh, no matter what you're doing, costs is uh, uh, crucial. Um, and quality, and uh, I'm a great believer in quality, uh, not only in the beers we manufacture, but in the way we operated our food operation here. And um, so on our first opening, uh, we didn't really have a kitchen that was uh, in a good enough position to operate, so with a little bit more work done and, uh, and some resurrection work within the building, we... Uh, were able to start offering food. Um, and initially, my first chef was an Egyptian who uh, told me he could do anything. He was actually a handyman, but he told me he could cook, so I put him in and we made, we had falafel and uh, great salad in the beginning just to get things going while we were installing our brewery and still building works were going on. But eventually we opened the restaurant and uh, we had two cuisines going on here, as we always have, and that is we have bar food, and then we had a higher 
um, I suppose, a la carte selection menu in the restaurant area, which we've continued uh, to this very day. Um, the ex eating experience is different, uh, but always uh, encompass the best uh, quality uh, goods that I could purchase. And uh, that's what we've always have done. So I select again uh, New Zealand sirloins on our on our menu as uh, often as I can for the consistency of that grass-fed beef. The ribeyes in the restaurant are all from the Fleurier Peninsula in South Australia. I have a man who selects my beef for me down there, and that has always been the case. Um, and we're renowned for our ribeyes just for that quality. Uh, and again, they are, they are outstanding and grass-fed. Um, lamb, I will buy wherever I chase the grass uh, and have the freshest and, and uh, best grass we can. That's where I buy my lamb from. Uh, seafood comes from a supplier who's an artisan supplier who sends me photographs, for example, of harpooka line caught. Sorry about this New Zealand behaviour, but if that's, where, if that's where the fresh fish is coming from at the time, I'll take it. Line caught harpooka. Uh, 20, 20 fish at a time on the line, off the coast of the South Island, into shore, in the truck, on the plane, caught uh, Tuesday on my plate on, on Thursday, direct, well, I'm happy to supply that to my clients. And that's the sort of thing we like to do. Same with our uh, fruit and vegetable supply, whatever is in uh, season is what we're on. And uh, that's only by talking with your suppliers on a regular basis. Uh, I'd like to say daily, but that's not the case. I, I, I trust them, um, but they would contact me if something else happened and, uh, or something arose. But I'm very much on top of uh, what's in the supply chain and uh, talk regularly to fish, fishmongers, fruit and vegetable merchants and meat suppliers all the time. 35 years is extraordinary. What, what are some of your favourite memories of the Lord Nelson? Um, there's been many interesting visitors here, famous, not famous. Dan Quayle visited the hotel, uh, the ex-Vice President of the United States. Um, it was a no-news day worldwide, and we made the front page of every major international newspaper that day uh, with the Premier of New South Wales, Nick Reiner, at the time. So I received many phone calls from friends uh, asking what my pull was to get into the front page of the New York Times and London Times and uh, other newspapers. But on top of that was the wonderful phone calls I received from the passionate American voter who would ring up and say, because my name was written like the other guests on the day were written under the photograph in the newspaper. Are you Blair Hayden? Yep. What are you doing with it? With like Dan Quayle in your pub. What sort of brains you got, man, having a dickhead like that in your establishment? Anyway, I took about 145 million of those phone calls, if you don't, if you don't mind me exaggerating slightly, until eventually after week two, I got a bit tired of these, these calls and I had the following response to the caller at 9.30 on Monday morning. I said, well, he has got three things going for him, you know. And the fellow on the end of the line said, what would they be, Mr. Hayden? I said, you can call me Blair. It's a long call, you know. We're, we're on a first-name basis here. 
I said, well, he likes playing golf. He said, yeah. I said, he has a very attractive wife. He said, oh, yeah, you got a point there. I said, and he really likes our beer. He said, goddamn man, he said, you might be right. I'm going to change my vote. <laughs> so you see, it doesn't take much. It's the things that we always love. It's the food and beverage that lead our lives. Other memories, well, you know, we, beat, we when we arrived, we took over the sailing and foot race with the Australian Navy where the Navy would bring their taser vessels uh, that were at Rustcutters Bay and other naval bases on the south coast to Sydney for a, a, a day of uh, sailing and then a foot race from Rustcutters Bay back to the Lord. After they didn't win for 10 years, they decided to withdraw that competition, but it wasn't anything to do with us pulling in Olympic sailors, Olympic runners for the Lord Nelson team. I even changed and put in a ladies' team to give them half a chance, but they couldn't beat us at that either. So the Navy withdrew. Uh, for another uh, ironic uh, win for Horatio Nelson. Well, you've won um, many accolades, um, wine list of the year, gold medals for your ales, like all sorts of things. What's been what's what's made you proudest over the years? Well, apart from the pride of being custodian of such a beautiful building and, uh, and and such a lovely place, and I like to think the patrons make what this hotel is, we offer uh, what I hope is our interpretation of the way the building should be. That is that it, was, it has been a, a hotel for uh, 180 years this year, and um, I think it should remain that way, and I try to make it look the same uh, in the 35 years that, that I've been the custodian um, for those visitors that come. And many, many overseas visitors uh, have been here. Many people have been to the Lord. If you're a visitor to Australia, whether you're a tourist or a businessman, I don't know what it is, but people have either heard of it or been to the Lord Nelson. And they say uh, to me as well that they they appreciate that it looks just the same. Uh, we have in-house cleaners, and Vera has done a magnificent job for many, many years here. My staff stay, uh, have remained. We've had staff that have been here for the whole 35 years and those that have been here for 25 years. And that includes, you know, some of our cleaning staff. So Vera polishes the brass and makes that bar look just the same every time you visit is a credit to our business and uh, I'm very proud of that. Um, yes, we've changed the furniture as we should. Furniture needs to be changed but again I hope it's sort of in keeping with the style of the hotel and uh, we change glassware and we we change um, uh, the way the restaurant looked. Um, uh, re you know, we did a major upgrade 18 years ago and putting more rooms on the roof to accommodate our accommodation. Um, the restaurant, uh, I've been extremely proud of. We've had, I had a chef that had been there for 20, over 20 odd years until recently. Uh, the consistency of that is so important to what we operate and how we operate as a business. Uh, the accolades, uh, or consistency of the food, but the accolades for a wine list, which is just another one of my passions and beverage um, in exposing uh, a lot of new winemakers in Australia over that th over those 35 years. 
showing up and coming uh, wine styles, although I'm not really a great lover of the natural wines of today so much, but that's a preference and I understand that people are allowed uh, to do and have a, like things that I don't necessarily like. Uh, I, I like the ageability of some of these other wines, but I see improvement in winemaking uh, skills in that uh, sector. Um, that we've been lucky enough to win Winers of the Year twice and runner-up twice. God forbid I, I'm dying to win that third one for the Hall of Fame, but uh, we can only live in hope. We can only live in hope, but we keep exposing new wines, you know, to have spotlights of people like Rockford Wines, who I first brought up to Australia, uh, to Sydney in, in 1986 uh, to put on our wine list in the very uh, beginning of the Rockford Wine era, uh, to my latest spotlight with Johnny Hughes, a Riesling freak, who's just a specialist in producing some of the most outstanding Riesling uh, in the world. Uh, it is an honour and a pleasure to be able to show and sell these wines, to have customers that come in and ask me to recommend something new for them or what is new or what are we liking or what, do, you know, what are we sticking with? I mean, that's, that's just such a lovely honour and uh, such a pleasure to operate in that, in that realm. Uh, to put them onto a half pocket that was lying caught on Tuesday and it's on their plate today, don't even think about it. To have a freshly shucked oyster, which not many pubs do uh, in the world, let alone in Australia, that we shuck our oysters each day. Um, you know, that's just another specialty of the Lord's. And to eat such delicious fresh oysters like that is just, uh, you just don't go back to, uh, to oysters uh, that have already been opened when you eat those shucked oysters. To have had the support of people in the industry, such as Neil Perry, whom put our package beer on, the sommeliers of Sydney who supported us with three sheets uh, at the time. Um, and all those in the industry, so I won't name anyone, I'm sorry, it would be lovely to name Neil, but uh, without uh, upsetting anyone else, but all those that have supported us and believed in our natural hours, who believed in Sydney, uh, who believe uh, that the way forward uh, is for craft ales, or craft beers to be of uh, the importance and significance that they should hold their own sector on a on a um, on a wine list or, or beverage list, in better expression. That it is as important as having the new tonics that we taste today, the different tonic waters that share the wonderful new gins that we're uh, uh, distilling and um, and be innovative in that way and experimental. Uh, just the choice, we are so spoiled and the artisans that are evolving and appearing in this country are something we should be extremely, extremely proud of. You mentioned the challenges of the last year and a half, um, but as we move forward and uh, everyone gets vaccinated and we move beyond COVID, what, what are you most looking forward to? Um, just a continuation of what we we started and have, have worked with for 35 years to hone those skills. Uh, in our case, we are, we're putting out more seasonal bruises because that's what um, the consumer is after. That's not necessarily easy in a small business um, to continually uh, do small runs because it creates stock control issues. 
uh, and storage issues. Um, you have to be spot on and making sure that everything that you're producing in those smaller artisan runs uh, are moving and are sold. But uh, we proudly rolled Old Admiral in a can off the off the uh, canning line this morning, and loving the look of the orange on the label uh, and the black can and. Keep posted for one of those coming your way very shortly. Harpe, uh, a seasonal brew, brew, which is, again, a bit of my Kiwi uh, heritage, which has a tattoo on the label, although I have to tell, say the print is reversed, it, so it's a bit hard to see. But the tattoo is on there in a dark green, and Harpe, H-A-P-E, oblique, uh, is, uh, and Maori means happy. So as we say, happy a brew. And this is exactly what this beer does, and this is why the industry is so exciting. The hop used in that beer was a single hop variety from Motueka in uh, the top of the uh, South Island in New Zealand, and from the Nelson region, extremely well known in the old days for tobacco growing. Uh, but obviously the tobacco industry has waned considerably. Uh, became well known as a beautiful uh, and very distinguished wine growing area and all all that time during that duration was always a producer of hops which sort of fell into the background a bit but this Motueka strain is a delicious hop and again I urge you to try and uh, taste this Harpe available in Cannes um, from the Lord and welcome anyone to contact us to find out where else it's available. But, you know, these are the innovative ideas that are, uh, and freedoms that we have today and um, the excitement that the new world is coming back to. That is, we are returning to viticulture, agriculture. Hop growing is now in favour again. How exciting is that? Um, the vegetables and, and the fruits that we're getting of that labour, you know, great garlic in Australia. Uh, you know, that, those things just have to, people have to understand, don't just happen. And uh, it's great to see that people are realising now that the drought is breaking, that this is um, looking really exciting for our future. Well, Blair, it's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. I know you've got many more, so we'll have to catch up again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much, Anthony. All the best to you, team. Um, and uh, stay safe for COVID, but let's hope. Uh, uh, I think uh, Gladys Berejiklian is doing a fantastic job in our premier and trying to control this uh, this uh, unbelievable pandemic that we're, 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 we're uh, in the midst of. But I think she's on the right track, and I'm hopeful that the hospital industry is open and ready for business again next week. Fingers crossed. Thanks, mate. Take care and um, talk soon. Thank you. Thank you too. Bye-bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.